We're beginning our journey this morning through the book of James. I want to thank Chris. I know he's not here this morning, but I just thank him for uh, filling in for me last Sunday and, and taking the pulpit again. Josh and I had the opportunity to actually work a journey at Camp Ileana together. We had 12 young men there and a team of men there to serve, and it was just a beautiful time to, uh, to serve in that way, and I thank the church for that opportunity, and again, I thank Chris for making it possible here also. I did take the opportunity to uh, catch up on what happened here. I watched the video stream on Monday, and that was, that was a pleasure. That was a beautiful time to still feel a part of what went on here, so praise the Lord for that opportunity. Well, as you see in your sermon notes, we're going to start with James chapter 1, verse 1. And no, we're not going to just take one verse a week, but we are going to start out with one verse this week. Next week, we're going to try to tackle a whole three verses. But praise the Lord for the opportunity to cherish his scripture, though, and to cherish what he's given us in the Bible, to learn and to, to uh, spiritually ingest and to be nourished by. So as we look at verse 1, James, a servant of God, And of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning. Lord, I praise you, God, for this opportunity. I thank you for these words that were written so many, many years ago, Lord. God, that were intended for a specific audience, Lord, at that time, but are so precious and relevant to us today, Father. God, I just pray that you would guide us, Lord, as we begin this journey through yet another book of the beautiful gift that you gave us in your scripture, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to understand who the author is and what, he was, what his purpose was, and his ultimate purpose was to serve and to enrich and to further your kingdom, Father. And we praise you for that, God. We just pray, Lord, that you would guide us through this text, that you would reveal to us, that our hearts would be open to what you are revealing to us, Father, to teach us and to help us and to walk with us, Father. We praise you and we thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to start out with a few questions, and we're going to ask ourselves, who wrote this book? And there are different theories, um, and rather than explore too many of those theories, I want to look at the one that is the most prevalent, the most widely accepted, and the one that, that I believe is true, and it's, um, it's genuinely held that the author of the book of James was the half-brother of Jesus himself, James. And it's interesting, if you look at the Greek word that is translated James, it could be translated and was actually probably more properly translated Jacob. And it doesn't mean much, but it, and it could be James. James was another form of it. Uh, one of the theories was the reason that it was translated James was because uh, one of the original uh, English versions was the King James Bible, and they thought maybe just King James wanted to see his name in the Bible. I don't know if there's any merit to that or not, but it was just intriguing to look at that. But to know that that word, basic, I mean, in its purest form, would have been translated Jacob, it's just intriguing to me. But looking at James as the half-brother of Jesus writing this letter, that was not his only claim to recognition. He was also, this James, the half-brother of Jesus, was the leader of the church in Jerusalem after Pentecost, after Christ had been crucified and resurrected and, and after, he had, uh, after the Spirit had been given to the apostles there at Pentecost. Um, he led the church. We know that uh, primarily it's in a couple places in Acts, but one of the key scriptures was in Acts chapter 15 where uh, Peter went to the council there in Jerusalem and was asking about 
the different aspects of, of the Jewish culture, the Jewish worship, and, and specifically asking about circumcision. So we know, actually it was Paul that went there in chapter 15, I believe. But we know that James was the leader of, church, of the church at that point. Uh, we also know from this opening verse, we, we learn the author's name. We also know that he calls himself a servant. James, the author of this book, calls himself a servant. And if you look at the definition of that word servant, it, it comes back to complete obedience, utter humility, and unshakable loyalty. He's saying that's how he desires. That's his prayer, basically, that that is the servant that he is, that he is to to who? And we're going to talk about that later. We're going to talk about who he wrote the book, who his loyalty was to. And we know it was to God. But we're going to get into that in a little bit more detail later. But as far as who he wrote this book to, he wrote it as a servant of God. But who did he write the book to? Well, he says in this opening verse that the 12 tribes scattered. We know that looking at the 12 tribes reference, that he's undoubtedly talking about the Jewish believers. We, we know, as, we, as we'll continue through this text of James, that he refers to them as believers. We know as the 12 tribes that he's talking to the Jews, and we know through some of the verses throughout this book of James that he calls them believers. So he's talking to believers within the 12 tribes of Israel. That's who he's writing this letter to. He also, as we go through the book, in talking about places of worship, he mentions synagogues, and that's a very Jewish word for a place of worship. Next question we have is, when did he write this book? Well, we know that the brother of Jesus, known as James, we know by other historical accounts in, in historical books that were written outside of the canon of Scripture that he, and they're verifiable, that he was martyred in AD 62. So we know that this letter had to be written prior to that. We also know that in this letter, unlike the book of Galatians that we went through, that there's no mention of the controversy with Paul over circumcision. So that gives us a little more focus on the date. It had to be prior, most likely had to be prior to that because he makes no mention of that. And he also, throughout this book, makes no mention of Gentiles. None of the issues that came upon the church when Gentiles began to be introduced to the church. So James makes no mention of that. So we know we can make a pretty safe uh, deduction that it was prior to when the Gentiles were really becoming uh, discipled into the church because it wasn't an issue yet when he wrote this letter. With all those factors in place, we can estimate that it was probably written somewhere between AD 45 and AD 50, which would make it, if not the first, one of the very uh, oldest books of the New Testament, one of the earliest penned letters of the New Testament. Okay. We have the who and the, we have the when. I want to ask our questions next. Why? Why did James write this letter? Well, we know in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it says, On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. This is referring, I believe, directly to what verse 1 of James chapter 1 says when it talks about the dispersion. These Jews were scattered all over the land because of this persecution, because of this persecution against the church of Jesus Christ. 
they were scattered for a purpose. Why were they scattered? Because of the persecution. But God did that for a reason. These people were believers. They were deeply heartfelt believers in Jesus Christ. And Christ, God's purpose in scattering them was to spread his gospel more effectively. Imagine if they would have just stayed in a pile in Jerusalem. It wouldn't have been very effective in reaching out to the, to the outer uh, communities, would have they? And God used that definitely for his purpose to spread his gospel message. And we know that James ministered to the church at Jerusalem. We know that the writer of this letter, as we continue to study it, we'll, we'll learn even more in depth that he had an intimate knowledge of these people's circumstances, an intimate knowledge of the struggles they were facing. We know also throughout this letter that he spoke with authority, which would relate back to the fact that he was the leader of the Jerusalem church. He obviously had heard of some of their problems, some of their struggles they went through. And he wrote this letter to be sent out to all of these Jews, these believing Jews who had been scattered throughout the nations. That was the purpose of this letter that James wrote. And it can be very applicable to us because we're out living among the world, aren't we, as Christians? We're called to be. We're called to interact with those who need a doctor to those who are the sick among us. So this letter is very applicable to us, just as it was to these Jews, to these 12 tribes, representatives of the 12 tribes who were scattered throughout the land in this day. And that's why this letter was written for them, and that's why it's applicable. applicable. That's why it's relevant to us. As we look at some of the things that we're going to face, we, we look at next week, we'll be looking uh, at the next few verses, as I said, verses 2 through 4, we'll be starting to look at difficulties and persecutions that they faced and how they were to interpret those and how they were to embrace those. In chapter 2, the first 13 verses, we'll look at some of their discriminatory practices, how they held one person above another and how that revealed a lack of love in their hearts. And James wanted to address that in their hearts as they were out. In chapter 3, we'll look at bitterness in their speech and in their attitudes. And he, he addresses that and and some things that they need to look at in that. That's some things we're going to be looking at as we go through this book. In chapter 5, the first six verses, we look at how the ungodly rich were oppressing them. And these ungodly rich were among them, were part of them. And he addresses them directly. He's, he's addressing some issues that he undoubtedly sees, that he's heard about, that he may have saw before they were scattered and he knew that they needed to be addressed. So he purposely wrote this letter to address these things. And we're going to be addressing them in our lives. But ultimately, in the verse that I opened up with this morning, in chapter 1, verse 22 of James, he gives us the basic focus of his letter. And he's telling them, as I said, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So that's what he's telling them. You have to be doers, not only hearers. A word I want to hit on a little bit this morning. You guys, and I know you've probably heard the word. I assume you have. The word theology. Do you know what theology is? Well, if you break it down, you take the last part first because for whatever reason, English does it backwards of what the original languages did. So if you look at ology first, it's the study of. And if you look at theo, it means a god or a deity. So it's the study of God. Theology is the study of God, the academic study of God. And to study God, to dig into theology, to to dig into who God is, is extremely important. How are we going to serve someone if we don't know who they are or how they function, how they click, basically? 
How, how can we begin to live for God when we, don't, when we don't know who he is? So theology is important. And he, he addresses that. He says, don't be hearers only. Don't just hear the knowledge. Don't just drink the, the under, try to drink the academic portion, the, the knowledge of God into your hearts, into your minds, and just leave it there. Don't just be hearers. Don't, don't just be learners. Don't just get stuck in academia. He says, he says to be doers also. You see, his book to James is, by some estimates, the second to the least as far as theological. Uh, Philemon is considered to be the least theological, the least academic book in the New Testament. And say, so what, do, what does that really mean? Well, what James is doing in this book, it's a practical letter. It's helping us to take theology and flesh it out. It's helping us to be practical with what God, with understanding, with our knowledge of God and who he is and what he says he will do. It's a practical book, helping us to apply it to our lives. That's what James' intentions was to the church of Jerusalem. That's what, his intention, what God's intentions is for us today. He wants us to teach us how to be doers and what it means to be doers. You know, as we went through... The book of Galatians, it stressed not to depend on law, not to depend on doing for our salvation. It stressed the importance of grace and how God does it in his divine influence upon our hearts. James stresses, again, to be doers. Now, wait a minute, does that seem to be contradictory? No, because doing comes out of faith. Doing is a result of faith. Doing is a result of trust in Jesus Christ. And as we go through this, and we'll hit it very specifically in one section of the text, about faith without works is dead. And it's not the works that brings life. The works are a result of the life. And that's what James is going to tell us, and that's what he's telling us to look for as we go through this letter. You see, to be a doer is to surrender control to God. To allow His grace to work in our hearts and to be manifested in the things we do. That's what to be a doer is. It's to do the will of God. It's to follow a plan. God's plan. You know, there's another plan. We have many plans that we can follow in our, in our lives as we live out our lives. Many of you may be bakers or cooks. And you have to have a recipe. And a recipe ultimately is a plan to do something. You, you have a plan to make something. I looked up a chocolate chip cookie recipe online. And I looked at what the ingredients in that were. You know, one of the first things, of course, chocolate chip cookies is semi-sweet chocolate chips. Another is butter or sugar. Brown sugar in this particular recipe was included. Hot water was another one of the ingredients. Vanilla extract to give it that little bit of a vanilla taste. You put raw eggs into the batter as part of the cookie. You put flour into the cookies as part of the recipe. Use baking soda. There's also salt in chocolate chip cookies. Those of you who never baked, maybe you didn't know that. You mix these things together and then the instructions tell you to bake these cookies at 10 minutes for 300 and, at 350 degrees. That's a recipe. That's how you produce a chocolate chip cookie and I particularly enjoy chocolate chip cookies. Probably why I picked that recipe. But you put those ingredients together and you follow the instructions to produce a chocolate chip cookie. What would happen if you tried to make a chocolate chip cookie with only the, only the ingredients that taste good to us. I want you to ponder that thought a little bit as we, as we look at another 
truth. And then we're going to come back to that. But what if you tried to make a chocolate chip cookie with only the ingredients that tasted good by themselves when they're separate from the chocolate chip cookie? But while you're contemplating that a little bit, I ask you the question, how did, God, how did James address the one that he served? In this first verse, what did he call him? He said he was a servant of who? He was a servant of God, but he didn't stop at God. He said, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Was he talking about three people? Or was he just talking about Jesus? Why didn't he just say Jesus? Why did he say Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you look at those parts of his address to Jesus, his his acknowledgement, his identification of Jesus, the first is Lord. And and basically he's saying that he is the heavenly exalted Lord who will one day return in glory to this world. He's Jesus. He's God come to earth as a human being. He is Christ, the anointed one, who fulfilled God's purposes for dying for us. Those three names that he gave to Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ. We do pretty well at the last two names, the Jesus and the Christ part, don't we? And I hope you understand a little more what I'm saying as we go through this. But the Jesus part, we believe that he came to the earth as a man. We read it historically in our Bible. We've been taught it all of our lives, you know, since soon before we became a Christian and then throughout our Christianity, we've read about it. We've been taught that Jesus came to earth as a man. He died and was resurrected for our sins. We've been taught that. We believe that. We believe that he died for us. We believe that as as our Christ, that he's our savior, that he carried our sins to the cross, that he took the wrath of God. We believe that as a future reward, as a future promise for us. It happened in the past, but is it, is it a future gift for us for eternity? But, see, those things are the, two things are the past. We have the historical account of his physical life on this earth. We have the future promise of glory in heaven because of the gift that he gave us as our Christ. But do we make him the Lord of our lives? Do we submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ? Is he our Lord Jesus Christ? That's a question I want to put before you this morning. Are we following his recipe for victorious Christian living? We have a cookbook called the Bible. And there are commands in there for us to follow. And if we would surrender our lives and submit to the commands of Jesus Christ, some of which are laid out in this book of James. You know, James laid them out, but they line up directly with the commands of Christ with what it would mean to live in Christ's image. Those are all ingredients to living a victorious Christian life. Are we embracing those ingredients in our Christian life? Are we walking that Christian life? Well, what is his recipe? What what does he give us in the Bible? In James alone, by two different accounts, and I didn't take the time to try to count the commands myself, two different accounts, one says 54, one says there are 59 different commands within just the book of James. Direct commands on what we are to do and not to do as Christians. Why were we created? Why were we created? We were created to glorify God. That was the sole purpose that we were created. By choosing to follow Him and trust Him and believe Him, we were created to glorify Him. We talked about worship a couple weeks ago and what it means to live in worship, not just to sing and to raise our hands and to use our musical talents to praise Him but to truly live a life of worship. 
ultimately, God created us to be more and more like Jesus. And that is the ultimate form of worship. When we surrender our lives to Him in the desire, in the goal to be more and more like Jesus, the ultimate form of worship is to imitate, is to be like. How many people have you seen worship celebrities, worship public figures? They try to be like them. They try to talk like them. They quote them. They try to do the same things these people do. Are we trying to be more and more like Jesus? That's why we were created. That's the ultimate form, the ultimate tool we have of worshiping Him is to be more and more like Him. And again, He gives us the ingredients. He gives us the recipe in His Scripture to be like Him. He has a beautiful recipe laid out in the Bible for us to do that. And some of the ingredients to being a Christian, to be more and more like Christ, some of them are like those chocolate chips. I don't know, but some of you maybe think it's a little strong, but I, I can be tempted by a bag of chocolate chips. I can reach into that bag of chocolate chips and I can just eat them plain. They're pretty good. I enjoy that. And some of the things in our Christian life, like worship, like I talked about singing and living, lifting public praises to God, those are kind of like chocolate chips. We enjoy that. We enjoy listening, some of us, to different types of music. Some of us like participating in different types of music. But we enjoy that. It's, it's like the chocolate chips of our spiritual life. They're savoring. They're beautiful. They're, they're, they, just, they just taste wonderful to our spirit. Maybe it's serving. Some of you receive great joy in serving, in ministering to the physical needs of others in opportunities like Feed My Sheep or like Amanda and I got to in the Friends for Kids program in those years and, and the things that it brought to us. We thoroughly enjoyed that. Yeah, it had its trials too. But maybe some of your spiritual chocolate chips are serving others. But some of the things he asks us to do, some of the ingredients to a victorious Christian life taken by themselves aren't very pleasant, are they? And one of those may be reading and studying. It it may seem as just a a laborious job, just boring at times. There's so much entertainment in this world, you know, instant entertainment that we can get out and we can be uh, entertained by video and and audio things and, and that kind of pulls us away from studying and and ingesting the scripture. So it's maybe, I mean, if any of us were honest, there's times that studying is more laborsome. It's, it's not as quite, enti- quite as enticing to us as some of the other things we talk about. Maybe praying. Sometimes, and remember, the disciples in the garden, as, he went deep, as Jesus went deeper in to pray, they were supposed to pray, but what did they do? They fell asleep. You know, they weren't able to stand with him in prayer, and it grieved Jesus. But, you know, praying sometimes can be laborsome too. When we don't know what to say, we don't know what to pray, or our minds are somewhere else. I mean, that's one of the ingredients of a victorious Christian life that it's not quite as appealing as some of the more public things. Some of the acknowledgement we get for some of the more public things we do. We kind of get addicted to that too, don't we? Those kind of feed our our spirits, and and maybe those are our chocolate chips, I, I guess as I'm saying. Some of the even less appealing things are to lay down your life. Jesus gives, Paul gives that directive in Ephesians 5, when he says a husband is to lay down his, wife, his life as Christ. He's to love the church as, as Christ, love his wife as Christ loved the church. And that's a matter of laying down our lives. That's not very appealing at all, is it? To set ourselves aside. That's one of the much less appealing ingredients to a victorious Christian life. Perhaps it's to suffer persecution. We've talked about this before, that you know, we haven't faced a lot of persecution in this country. But we see throughout the world the persecution that people are facing. And that's... That's like swallowing a spoonful of the salt, isn't it? 
It's just horrible. Maybe it's like putting a, a, a handful of dry flour in your mouth. It's not very enticing at all, is it? You know, some of the things, some of the elements of a victorious Christian life, they're just not appealing on their own. Perhaps it's to love your enemy, someone who's wronged you, someone who's done something to you. It just, it's not fun at all. In fact, it's just discouraging, and, and we just want to run from it. Instead of loving our enemies, we choose to run from them. And we, we try to justify it by saying, oh, well, it, it's just confrontational. It'll just cause problems, so I'll just avoid them. I won't talk to them. That's not what God calls us to do. That's not what He commands us to do. He commands us, for His sake, to confront those who have wronged us, to, to go to those who we have wronged. That's just, again, not very appealing, though, is it? And sometimes things just flat poison the recipe. Things are just poisonous. You know, going back to our chocolate chip cookie recipe, you know, we, as, as you, those of you who are cooks, I don't count myself as one. We have liberties. You have liberties with recipes, don't you? You can adjust here, adjust there. And we have liberties. We have freedom in Christ, in our spiritual walk. There's certain ways that we can express our ways. You know, with chocolate chip cookies, this recipe that I had, I didn't mention it, but they put walnuts in it. I don't know why you'd want to do that, but... No, I don't mind a few walnuts in my cookies, but if I had my druthers, I'd prefer them without the nuts. But we have liberties. You have liberties whether or not to put those walnuts in those chocolate chip cookies, and it won't harm them. We have liberties in our Christian life with the way we express ourselves. So that's, God intentionally gives us that to let us express our personality. So that's, we don't have to follow a, a real rigid recipe. But one thing we can't do to chocolate chip cookies is we can't put poison in them. If we do, it's going to end terribly. It will end in physical death. But yet, we allow poisonous ingredients to come into our spiritual life. It's called sin. We poison our spiritual lives with sin. Remember, Paul said in, in Romans, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Sin brings death. Sin is poison to our spiritual lives. If not redeemed by the grace of God. But yet we're welcoming into our lives things that are poison to our spiritual lives. And see, what happens, we want our cookie, and when we're baking chocolate chip cookies, we want those cookies to look like the picture in the cookbook, don't we? That's what we're shooting for. We, we want it to look, and then we ultimately, we want, it to, we want them to taste well. Back to our question. What if we only use the ingredients that taste good separately, that taste good before we put them in the cookies? Uh, raw, it tastes pretty good, wouldn't it? I mean, what, what would you put in it? Maybe the chocolate chips, maybe the, the sugar, the brown sugar, the butter. I don't mind butter raw. Uh, maybe even the hot water once it cooled off a little bit. You, know, you could handle that. You could bear that, maybe. There's not much else that really tastes good by itself. The vanilla extract, it smells okay, but it's very strong and it, almost to a bitter, bitter point if you try to eat it by itself. So if you just put those ingredients in the cookie, what, what would happen? Well, like I said, raw, it, it's still not bad. And it's not bad, but it's, you can't eat much of it. It's too sweet. It'll just overtake you. So you, you just take a little and it tastes good, but then you put it down. But in life, raw, it's not gonna, life's not going to be raw for long. Those cookies are going to have to be put in the oven. Our spiritual lives are put in the oven. 
Because we're going to face trials. As much as sometimes we try to avoid them, we're going to have to face them. Whether it be a death in the family, whether it be uh, being released from your job, financial matters, whether it be a relationship issue, we're going to have to face the heat. So you put those cookies in the heat. What happens? You know, these cookies, and again, we're back to our recipe of only the things that taste good by themselves. So if you put only those ingredients, as I said, the chocolate chips, the sugar, the brown sugar and the butter, and maybe even the hot water, you put those ingredients in the oven, what are you going to get? What what are you going to get? You're going to get a mess. It's going to be all melted together, and even if you try to put them in just little piles as cookies, they're going to flow together, and you're not going to be able to pick these things up, and your hands are going to be sticky, and it's going to look terrible. What happened? Those ingredients were good by themselves. When you bake them, it just made a disaster, didn't it? It will. I don't recommend you try it, but it will. What happens with us, comparing our lives back to that cookie again? What happens when we, what do we want to do? We want to be like others. We want our lives to look like other people's lives, don't we? And understand what I'm coming from here. I'm not talking about want our lives to look like other people's lives as far as their material possessions, as far as their social status, as as far as they got the girl. No, I'm not talking about circumstances. I'm talking about spiritual. You know, when we're honest with ourselves and our spiritual lives, we want to be able to respond to trials the way so-and-so does. It seems like spiritually, they have it all together. How can they get through the trials that they get through? Everything, every little thing in life just breaks me down. That's maybe what you tell yourself. But yet this person, it seems like no matter what they face, they're at peace, they're at rest, they're strong, they're trusting. How do they do that? I want to look like that spiritually. How do they do that? But yet what we've been doing, we've only been ingesting the spiritual ingredients that are tasty to us on their own. We're not willing to take in the full scope of what what God is offering us. And those things that may not taste too good by themselves, but when blended together by the pressure, by the trials of this life, produce a beautiful, fragrant, and strong spiritual life. One example was mentioned uh, in prayer this morning with Andre Stahl. I don't know how many of you have gotten an opportunity to know that young man. But the journey that he has been on has been incredible. The trials that he has faced would be unbearable without a faith in Jesus Christ. And that young man, if you've had opportunities to talk to him at all, if you've heard some of the testimonies of people who have interacted with that young man, He's got the recipe down. He knows that it's all about God. And I don't know if you heard this week that he got excellent news. He had a transplant. And they tested and over 99% of his cells are donor cells. It was greater than anything they could have ever hoped for. But that young man was prepared to meet Jesus by the testimony that he had given. It wasn't based on his circumstances. It was based on his faith in Jesus Christ. He got it. He gets it. You know, if we're not embracing the full plan that Christ has for our lives, when the heat comes, we're going to turn into a gooey puddle like those ingredients that we pick and choose for the chocolate chip cookie. You see, when we pick and choose ingredients for our Christian life, the ones that are fun, the ones that are okay, when the heat comes, we're just going to be that sticky, gooey mess. That's what we're going to end up being. We don't have a choice in the matter once the heat comes. 
But we do have a choice because there is redemption. God will redeem us when we turn ourselves and surrender ourselves to His Lordship. You see, for us as Christians, Christ is the picture in the cookbook. Christ is the goal. He's what we want to be like when we've surrendered the Lordship of our lives to Jesus Christ. He is who we long to be. But see, what happens, we want to leave out some of the undesirable ingredients. We don't want to be selfless. We don't want to be unacknowledged servants. We want some glory. We don't want to suffer at all for our faith. We don't want the change. Well, we do want the change that will come through full surrender, but we don't want to surrender what it takes to, to allow that full effect upon our lives. Why is that? Well, we don't enjoy them. We're selfish people. We only want to embrace what, what seems fun to us, what, what delights us. We just don't get it. And what happens, actually, we hold on to things that are poison. We hold on to sins. We, part of our failure to surrender is there's things we don't want to let go. We, we rather enjoy partying. We rather enjoy all this revelry, these things that are contrary to the nature of God. So we don't want, let it, we don't want to let go of those things. But then the heat comes. The trials come. The persecutions come. And we turn into that puddle of goo and we just don't understand why. And what's happened is we haven't surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We haven't allowed all of His gifts to be applied to our lives. You see, we need to study. We need to study, not because studying itself is going to change us, but if we're going to change, we need to understand who's changing us. We need to understand who God is. Being surrendered to God, being selfless, teaches us surrender and, and helps to teach us that it's not about us. And all these ingredients are brought together again by grace. Ultimately, it's not us that does it. It's God that does it. But as we go through James, as we go through the book of James in the months to come, we're going to look at some of these commands, some of these ingredients. And we know that as we started this message out, that works come from faith. These works, these things that we need to do as doers, they come from our faith in Jesus Christ. And James is going to hit on a lot of these. And we need to remember that anything good that is in us is from God. Anything good that is in us is not from anything we've done, but surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Don't try to manufacture the fruits. Don't try to manufacture the things you do. But look for the result of your faith in Jesus Christ. The things you do are a result of your faith in Jesus Christ. Part of doing that is to look for the poisonous things. Look for the examples, the, the fruits of sin in our lives. I shouldn't call them fruits, but the results of sin in our lives. We need to identify those things. A portion of James' commands that he brings to us are in the negative form. He says, do not. He says, do not swear. Do not merely listen. Do not boast. He goes on to talk about bitterness and pride and unbelief. You see, brothers and sisters, this morning, as we're looking to live a victorious life, as we're looking to fulfill the call upon our lives to be more and more like Jesus, the first step is to identify where we're not. To identify where we're allowing things in our lives that are contrary to the nature of Jesus Christ. And that's what James is going to do throughout this book. 
And then what we do when we identify those things, we don't try to learn more. We don't try to educate ourselves. We don't try to pray more. We take them to Jesus and we say, God, I'm a sinner. These things are in my life and I want a victorious life. I want to be more and more like your son. Please continue to show me these things. And as you show me these things, give me the power to overcome them. Give me the power to let go of these things that Satan has convinced me that are okay, that I've justified in my life, but that are actually sin. They're poison to my spiritual life. Confess these things as sin. Be a theologian. Learn who God is and what God says He will do. Compare your life to those standards. Identify the areas where you fall short of those standards, where you're bringing ingredients into your spiritual life that are not part of God's recipe. And take them to the cross. Learn who God is. Learn what sin is. Identify where you are straying from the faith that produces the fruits of the Spirit within your life. I ask you this morning, are you ready for this journey? As we go through this book of James, as you read it yourself, as we study it together, as I look at the truths that are in here and I bring them by prayer, by submission to Jesus Christ to you each week, are you ready to have your toes stepped on? Mine are a little sore already as I've been reading through the book over and over. What things are you holding on to that are contrary to the nature of God? What things are you holding on to that are causing your life to come up short of the image of Jesus Christ? I ask you this morning to be in prayer, preparing your hearts to be made more and more in the image of Jesus Christ, to identify the things that are causing you to come up short, to meet the goal, the standard of being more and more like Jesus Christ. Let's pray.